This is the fourth episode in an ongoing series and the second episode covering the disappearance of Sonia Tukes. This episode contains detailed discussions of intimate partner violence. If you are in need of resources, please reach out to 800-799-SAFE or thehotline.org. In order to raise money for Season of Justice, we are joining forces with our friends at Moms and Mysteries for the next month. You can learn how to help support this campaign at the end of the episode. This is The Fall Line. Last episode, we began our coverage of the disappearance of Sonia Tukes, a 22-year-old mother from Tennell, Georgia. If you'll recall, Tennell is a tiny town in Washington County, which sits on the CSRA, the Central Savannah River area of the state. It's made up of 14 counties here in Georgia and another seven in South Carolina, and includes larger cities like Aiken and Augusta. But there are plenty of tiny towns, too. Tennell is one of them. So is Sandersville, the Washington County seat. It is much better known than Tennell, though it's still small, mostly because it's home to Georgia's white gold mines. That's kaolin or white clay or chalk. You probably use products containing kaolin every day, and the mining operations that are built around its production are a major source of income for the region. But they also mean that Sandersville is full of areas that are dangerous. If caution isn't taken, abandoned mines and pits that companies have warned residents to stay away from. Remember that. We'll come back to it later in the episode. But first, we need to pick up where we left off. May 10th, 2004. Sonia Tukes had been living with her sister Barbara for only a few days. She'd recently left what her family describes as a violent domestic situation. And, as we told you in the last episode, the Macon Telegraph reported in May of 2004 that both Sonia and her then-boyfriend had been arrested just days before. Here's how we described it last time, as based on the Telegraph's 2004 reporting. Quote, The two had been charged with simple battery May 5th after they fought with each other. In a 2023 interview with WJBF, current sheriff Joel Cochran said, quote, It's my understanding that she had some interaction with law enforcement dealing with some domestic issues. Again, we want to stress, as we did last time, that without her file, our FOIA has not been fulfilled. We cannot provide full context on that situation. But as Barbara explained to WJBF this spring, quote, She met him at a young age, and she couldn't be apart from him. Then, when the violence got started, we used to always try and tell her, you're better than that. You don't need that. But after the arrest, Sonia had left. According to what Barbara told us, she'd only been at Barbara's house for a few days and had moved into her spare bedroom. If you'll recall, Sonia Tukes was last seen by her family on May 9th, 2004, Mother's Day. She spent the afternoon with her relatives, her mother and her sister Barbara, and then had gone out with Barbara for some relaxation. But they'd returned home pretty early. After all, Sonia was scheduled to work that morning. And according to what her sister told WJBF, she'd prepared for that. She'd gone to bed early after dropping her son off at his grandparents' house. Because she was working with Shepherd Construction on a new road project, 
Her hours were long, and she had hot, hard work ahead of her. She hadn't planned on leaving the house again, as far as Barbara knew. She remembers seeing Sonia dressed in her PJs, a t-shirt and shorts, as she headed into her room. Barbara shared a separate room with her boyfriend. So, as far as she knew, when they headed to their beds, Sonia was turning in for the night. And based on reporting, it seems that authorities believe that Sonia was too. But around 1.30 on May 10th, something happened. The phone rang. Not that Barbara or her boyfriend knew it then. They were asleep. But when Barbara checked the caller ID later, she knew a call had come in. And Sonia must have heard it. The morning of May 10th began normally enough. Barbara's boyfriend had left early for work, and Sonia would have too, so it wasn't strange to Barbara that she was in the house alone. Barbara was still on maternity leave, so she was home when the phone calls began to come in. Remember, this was 2004. They still had a landline. Many of you probably grew up with landlines. But in case you're unfamiliar with how caller ID functioned 20 years ago, let us explain. Back then, caller ID was a feature that either displayed on your phone, like you'd see on a mobile phone today, or else through an external device that we hooked up to our landlines. It looked like a little display screen. You could scroll through and see all the numbers that it called, whether or not the person had actually left a message. But it wasn't like today's cell phones in that you were always checking your phone. You checked caller ID when you'd been out of the house, the same way you'd check for voicemail. And Barbara, she had been home all morning. She didn't have any reason to think that there was an issue, not until a call came in from Sonia's employer, asking why she wasn't at work. Barbara thought that Sonia was at work. So, That's when she decided to take a look at the caller ID and saw that a phone call had come in early that morning. According to Barbara, she recognized the number. She knew that call was from a payphone, and she said that she believed that Sonia's estranged boyfriend had called from that particular number before. According to NBC41, investigators would indeed later, quote, trace the call to a payphone on the outside of town at a service station. Though, of course, they could not say for sure who had used the phone that morning to call Barbara's residence. But as WJBF reported, Barbara suspected that Sonia would have recognized that number. As she told Renetta, quote, she knew it probably was him. He had called before off that number. According to WJBF's recent reporting on the case, the payphone was located at a sitco on Highway 15, though, of course, it's no longer there today. In Renetta's reporting, the time of the call is narrowed down to about 1.15 a.m. Captain Bergamy of the Washington County Sheriff's Office told Renetta, quote, Only this person would know that Sonia was at Barbara's house. This person knew Barbara's phone number. And this person knew exactly what time to make that phone call and what to say and what to do to get Sonia Tukes to come out of that house. And Sonia did leave the house in her pajamas and a pair of black flip-flops. According to what Barbara told us, she even left the front door slightly cracked, possibly so she could get back in, though that's just a guess. The problem was, at first, no one realized it. 
And he probably did something, you know, told her something to get her out of the house and everything. And she went out the door and her intention was to come to come back in the house. So if she would have put the door up hard enough, we would have heard her shut the door. When Barbara's boyfriend went to work, he'd seen the door ajar and shut it. He thought that one of the three of them had accidentally left it open, not that Sonia had gone out. So Barbara had no sign that anything was amiss, not until the construction company called to say that Sonia missed work. We were like, well, maybe she'll come back. So about 12 o'clock, he called back and was like, we haven't showed up from work. Still, at that point, Barbara wasn't convinced that anything was wrong. She figured that Sonia would show up. But then a friend called after work to say that her sister had never arrived. And that, that was too far out of character. Sonia was not just going to take off and leave her responsibilities behind, not without calling Barbara. And when she found out that no one else had heard from Sonia, well, she knew that her sister wasn't going to leave her son. It was out of the question. So this when I called the police and, you know, tried to put out a missing report. They told me I had to wait the 24 hours. So the 24 hours was at night, about 10.30. So that's when I called the police. And that's when they came and got everything, all the information and everything. Were most of y'all agreed that you were pretty suspicious of the same person? Yes, because she had always said if anything happened to her, it would be him. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered. But we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas, as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is Witnessed. 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. As we told you last time, the search for Sonia seems to have begun fairly soon after her missing persons report became active. The Macon Telegraph reported that the case was officially handed off to the GBI, quote, two days after she was reported missing. But that doesn't seem to have stopped Washington County from participating in the search. Per the same 2004 article, quote, friends, family, and co-workers were questioned, and quote, Sheriff's deputies searched rural areas of the county with four-wheelers and on foot. And according to WJBF, one such search took place, quote, behind the home she disappeared from and in the woods along State Road 88 to the county line. In more recent reporting covering the 2023 task force, the examination of phone records seems to have been a key aspect of the investigation, which led investigators to verify that a call not only came in from the payphone at the Sitco, but that it was answered at Barbara's residence. While many people were questioned during that period of time, it seems that not everyone willingly spoke to law enforcement. When reporter Skylar Henry's 2016 report on Sonia's case was released, he noted that, quote, Investigators claim the boyfriend got a lawyer before they could talk to him, and the little information they received showed him denying knowing anything about what happened. Again, this is not something we can verify with records 
or our own interviews, as our FOIA request has not been answered, and we have not received an answer to our request for comment. But that same information, that an initial interview was unable to be conducted, has appeared in at least one other news source. We discussed with Barbara how she felt about the initial investigation into Sonia's case. I just said they did what they can do at the time. But now from 19 years ago to now, it's different technology, you know what I'm saying? So it probably would have been easier now than back then. It seems, based on available information, and there is very little up until this year, that there was little to no physical evidence that could directly connect anyone to Sonia's disappearance or prove that she had been victim of foul play. She did not contact anyone after May 10th, 2004, and no news source has reported any activity. There's been no clear indication then what could have happened to her after that early morning. Though the area was searched, as news reports indicated, there are difficulties in doing an exhaustive, full-scale examination of the Washington County terrain. There's the kale in mines and pits, for one thing, and though it's not something anyone likes to think about, those areas are something to consider. It's a lot of land that can be dangerous to traverse, and much of it isn't accessible. And though those areas are patrolled, it's impossible to keep an eye on everything. That's something Sonia Tuke's oldest sister, Sharon, pointed out to local reporters earlier this year when a new task force was announced in her case. In an interview with WXGA this spring, Sharon pointed to the industry as a possible reason why her sister has not been located in nearly 20 years. She said, quote, You know, this is Washington County. This is the country. This is the world of the chalk mine. Look at all these trees. Truth be told, that's my thought. The person of interest in this case has never been named by law enforcement. That's all we know for sure, and all that's been offered in the public record. The only public statements we've seen are, as Investigation Discovery summarized, that there is, quote, an unnamed person of interest in the case. But no one has as of the recording of this episode, been charged in relation to her disappearance or on the suspicion of her death. So anything we discuss in this episode must be viewed in this light. As WJBF reported when our colleague Renetta DeBose spoke with Washington County authorities this spring, she wrote that, quote, while there is a person of interest in this case, there are no suspects. Our goal is to make more people aware of Sonia's case. Because there's one thing we know is true, especially in small towns. People talk. And when the right person hears an episode or sees an ad on social media, they might decide to speak up. They might realize that a detail that they've been thinking about, not sure if it's important, is key. Or maybe they'll simply decide that Sonia's family has waited long enough when the major press push came for Sonia this past spring, it was because of that announcement of the new task force in her case, made up of multiple agencies that seemed to be a focus of their renewed energy. Regarding the case, WJBF quoted the current sheriff, Joel Cochran, as saying, quote, It would be good to get a total new set of eyes looking into what transpired back then. When we asked our colleague Renetta DeBose 
why she thought Washington County had formed the task force this past spring, whether there was the possibility of new information or some other goal in mind. She seemed to think that the idea of stirring up talk, at least in part, was a tactic. It's always important in a cold case. That's why law enforcement did the things that they did. It was all part of their main plan to basically weed out who might know something. So, of course, the press release, the candlelight vigil, um, talking to media, all that was because they really felt like they could squeeze out information from the public and that it would eat away at, at their conscience and the possible killer. So I don't know what led them to this conclusion, but they knew they needed to put the pressure on the public and get information out again. And they knew it was going to come out in the wash. That has been a hard thing for Sonia's family to wait for because there have been times that they've hoped that someone would come forward with information. Barbara told us that people have made some overtures, but that they've never followed through with the kind of proof that authorities would need. Sonia's siblings have had to watch their mother wait for news. It hasn't been easy. In 2016, Susan, Sonia's mother, told NBC41, quote, I'm the type of person now that because of all this, I like to be by myself. I can't take it. I'm going through so much. I can't take this. I can't. Barbara told us that the holidays are the most difficult. Mother's Day and her birthday are the two hardest times for my mom. So I try to just, I give her her space because I don't know what kind of mood she in. I just try to give her space and keep an eye on her them two days. Mm-hmm. She took all the pictures down that remind her of Sonya. Because she said, I didn't even know she had took all the pictures down. And she was like, once she coming out, it, it break her down. So she had to put, take the pictures down and everything. When Sharon, Sonia's older sister, spoke with reporters at the candlelight vigil this spring, WXGA quoted her as saying, I need answers, not for me. I need to know for my mom and for my nephew. Sonia's son is an adult now, in his mid-twenties, and Sonia's mother has spent nearly two decades waiting. The round of interviews this spring were emotionally exhausting for her, but she still spoke to reporters. As she explained at the vigil, she needs the community's help. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered. But we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas, as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is Witnessed. 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. We cannot talk about Sonia Tuke's story without focusing on the worries her family had for her. Starting with adolescence, when she got into a serious relationship and had her son, Domestic violence 
or as it's more commonly known now, IPV or intimate partner violence, has been a recurring theme in both interviews and in coverage of her case and in the concern everyone had for her. Though the police have only spoken on record in recent interviews about the arrest that came just days before her disappearance in 2004, which included both partners, we know that law enforcement engagement in partner violence situations can be complex, and procedure for who was arrested and when varies. And we aren't speaking of Sonia's case alone. We want to focus on what it means for other people too. For any person leaving a situation where intimate partner violence is a factor, the leaving itself, both preparing to leave and physically making the transition, is a precarious time. Sonia disappeared within five days of her move to Barbara's house, and she's certainly not the only person to have been in that situation. To help us discuss this issue, we reached out to a friend of the show, Amy Hutzel, She's the program director of the Sexual Assault, Child Abuse, and Human Trafficking Unit of the Georgia Criminal Justice Coordinating Council, or CJCC. Amy has been on the show before to discuss her work on the cases of some of the identified and unidentified victims of Samuel Little here in our state. Amy was able to connect us with Jennifer Thomas, a leading expert on intimate partner violence here in Georgia, and the former director of the Georgia Commission on Family Violence. Jennifer is currently with CJCC and was kind enough to walk us through some of the questions we had and to share that information with you. Jennifer is speaking generally here, as she is not an expert on Sonia's case and has not been asked to consult on it. Rather, we asked her to speak on the topic of intimate partner violence and what risk factors arise when one partner leaves a potentially abusive situation. While we're speaking, you'll hear Jennifer mention Dr. Jacqueline Campbell in the next section. She's referring to one of the nation's leading experts on intimate partner violence. Dr. Campbell is, per Johns Hopkins, quote, a national leader in research and advocacy in the field of domestic and intimate partner violence, or IPV. She has authored or co-authored more than 230 publications and seven books on violence and health outcomes. Her studies paved the way for a growing body of interdisciplinary investigations by researchers in the disciplines of nursing, medicine, and public health, end quote. We know that the most dangerous time for a victim of, of IPV is when they have left that relationship. In Georgia, I was privileged to be part of our statewide fatality review project for a number of years. And what we saw in reviewing those homicide cases was that, by and large, the majority, well over the majority, the victim at the time of their death had been or were making and taking steps to leave that relationship. If the perpetrator is losing power and control, right, which is what IPV and domestic violence is about, at its core, it's about one person attempting to maintain or gain power and control over another person. And if the offender of IPV senses that they are about to lose that control, you know, not all will result in a homicide, but uh, we have found by and large that is sort of the most at-risk or dangerous time for a victim. In our research and looking at domestic violence deaths and also near fatalities, so we had the privilege to sit and, and talk to uh, victims of a near fatality 
survivors who, you know, had been shot multiple times, but survived and were able to sort of tell their story. We learned some risk factors, or as Dr. Jacqueline Campbell many years ago identified these as lethality indicators. And so, you know, we're looking at, and we found several risk factors or lethality indicators that talk about, you know, these things were happening prior to the individual losing their lives. So what we found was sort of one of the most common themes or most common factors we we found was that a history of physical abuse or emotional abuse or, or some other type of abusive behavior that had happened in the relationship. So I guess what I'm saying is, is that the homicide was not the first time that the perpetrator had used violence against their victim, right? So there was a history of violence. We saw that the violence had started to increase or intensify in its severity. And so, you know, what may have started out as maybe just stalking or checking your phone or looking at where you've been and who you've been with, and that increased over time into becoming more uh, like physical violence. The types of violence had increased in severity and also frequency. Stalking, uh, definitely we saw stalking as a behavior that we saw in cases that we had studied. And an interesting link that we also found was strangulation, that an individual who has been strangled by their partner is eight times more likely to to be unfortunately killed by that person. And what we found is that they're not killed by strangling. It's most often a firearm that's used. But the act of, of, you know, putting your hands on another person's throat and and being able to impede their airway and blood flow. um, Literally, I have your life in my hands. And we really saw a definite uh, link between that also. Not surprising, the presence of a firearm, by and large, most of the domestic violence cases that we studied, the weapon of choice or the weapon that was used was a firearm. And so if there's a firearm, then the potential for death and harm of that victim is increased. Suicide attempts or previous suicide attempts by the perpetrator, co-occurring depression of the perpetrator, and then also alcohol or drug abuse, prior threats. To, to kill the victim, threats or harm against children, abuse while pregnant, harm to pets. Another one we saw was a diagnosis of a serious chronic or terminal illness for the perpetrator. Also an anticipated loss of financial security from the perpetrator, so losing their job. And then possessiveness over the victim, real, real jealous. Um, you know, we had the chance to interview friends and family or interview individuals who had survived a near homicide. We learned a lot of folks talking about the perpetrator believing and saying to the victim, I know you're cheating on me. I know that you're, you know, you're seeing someone else when in fact it was not the victim who was stepping out of the relationship, but it was the perpetrator who had stepped out of the relationship. But this was another way of controlling, right? Limiting your resources, trying to make your world smaller when I talk to survivors, if your world is getting smaller and the perpetrator's world or your partner's world is getting larger because of the smallness that you're now having to live in, I would suggest that you take a look at and and ask yourself, is this relationship safe and is it good for me? But what we have to do is be very intentional in listening 
to the ways that people are talking to us about the violence or the abuse that they have experienced. So they put their hands on my neck, right? Or they held me against the wall. Well, how were they holding you when they did that, right? And so we have to be very intentional in meeting the victim where they are so that we can thoroughly understand the potential risk factors, right? So if I just, oh, someone said to me, well, you know, they held me against the wall and I didn't dig deeper, then I might miss the opportunity to learn about that potential risk factor. So in the event that one wants to start thinking about becoming organized to exit the relationship, do you have a set of steps that they would want to start taking? I'd love to talk about that. You know, I think there are lots of resources online for helping to develop a safety plan. And I think what's most important to remember about a safety plan is each individual's plan will look very differently because each individual is experiencing and has different circumstances that are happening in their life. So in order for that to to happen and in order for your plan to be personalized and work, I would suggest that folks reach out to their local domestic violence program. That's where the experts work and the folks who can help you develop an effective safety plan. I think if you're not comfortable doing that or not ready to call a domestic violence program, and I think here's a really important thing for folks to know, just by calling a domestic violence program does not mean you have to move into that shelter. It does not mean that you have to leave that relationship at the time to receive support and assistance from a domestic violence program. By and large, the majority of victims that a domestic violence program works with still live in community. Maybe some of them are still with their partner trying to develop plans so that they can leave that relationship safely and, and do so you know, with their kids, really trying to do that in the safest way possible. But I would say the first thing after, if, if you're not comfortable calling a domestic violence program, if you're not ready to do that, that's totally fine. Finding a friend that someone that you can talk to, someone that you can share this information with that feels safe to do so. If you're looking and thinking about searching and doing some research, let's say you're, you're going to research your domestic violence program or you're going to research a safety plan, I think technology safety is so important. Like how, learning how are you going to clear your search history. If your partner you know, has a tendency or has ever looked at your phone or looks at the computer that you're using, wanting to make sure that, that you are, you know, sort of covering your tracks and, and making sure that what you're doing is, is not leaving indications to your partner that you're about to leave that relationship. Jennifer's advice is something that we hope can be useful to listeners, and we have provided further resources in our show notes as well. In regard to Sonia's case, Law enforcement has not publicly shared how much they regard her living situation as a factor in her disappearance, but they seem focused on exploring every avenue again, and they have specifically mentioned new ones as well. At the event in May, the sheriff brought up the potential of scientific advances. Per WXGA, quote, Sheriff Cochran said he hopes new forensics will help solve the case and bring answers for the family. What could those forensics be? Unlike the case of Travis Smith, 
whom we discussed in the first two episodes of this season, there are no clear indications in Sonia's public case information. But a lack of availability doesn't mean much. Law enforcement holds things back, and there could be evidence that has never been discussed until now. What specific tips they're hoping will come in, though, we don't know. So it's important that anything, no matter how insignificant, is considered. A rumor, a chance sighting, even something that you found out years later. It could be important for Sonia and her family. Her mother is tired and tired of waiting. She needs to know now what happened to her child. We have hope that the Joint Task Force will be successful in accomplishing this goal, but they need your help. You can share Sonia's poster, which is available on our social media channels and on WJBF's page or her Charlie Project listing. Or you can call authorities with any information that you have relating to Sonia's case. At the time of her disappearance, Sonia was wearing her pajamas, a black t-shirt and green shorts, and black flip-flops. Her hair was in cornrows, and she stood 5 feet 5 inches tall and weighed 175 pounds. She was just 22 years old. If you have any information regarding Sonia Tukes, please contact the GBI at 478-374-6988, the Washington County Sheriff's Office, at 478-232-1366 or the Sandersville Police Department at 478-232-6138. Callers may remain anonymous. Next time on The Fall Line, we're headed up to Macon County, Georgia and the little towns of Montezuma and Oglethorpe to cover a case dating back to the 1980s. It's the unsolved homicide of a young mother, Susie Walker Quinn, who was both well-known and well-respected in the area. When she didn't come home one night, it sparked immediate concern. And when her body was found on a country road just days later, her children were only 10 and 12 years old. Now, as adults, they're set on identifying her killer. If you know of a case that should be covered on the fall line, there's a link to our case submission form in the show notes. Thank you for listening. The Fall Line is an independent show, and we appreciate listener support. If you try out the products we advertise, please use our sponsor codes. It really helps. And please take a moment to rate and review our show in your podcast app of choice. If you're interested in pre-ordering my book, which covers more than a year of my life working on a Jane Doe case and the world of forensic scientists who resolve unidentified persons' cases, you can find a link in our show notes. It's called Lay Them to Rest, and it's out this October. Pre-ordering the book is a big factor in its success. And if you pre-order the book, there are opportunities to gain access to exclusive bonus material, like a full-length podcast episode covering a cold case briefly touched on in the book and a book release Zoom hangout with special guest Josh Hallmark. We'll be discussing our experiences working on Doe cases. You can find details on getting your bonuses by following the link in the show notes. If you already pre-ordered from anywhere, no problem you are eligible too. If you'd like to support the podcast and the stories we cover, join us on Patreon or Apple Premium. 100% of our Patreon and Apple Premium earnings go toward the Family Therapy Fund, which is supporting therapy for families who have appeared on the show. On Patreon, you can get early release ad-free versions of our regular episodes for $5 a month. 
If you prefer Apple Premium, you can subscribe there too. The Fall Line is written, hosted, and researched by Laura Norton, with additional research assistance by Brian Waters, Kiana Burgess, and Michaela Morrill. Interviews by Brooke Hargrove. Produced, engineered, and scored by Maura Curry. Content advisement by Brandy C. Williams and Vic Kennedy. And, as always, our most special thanks to Liz Lipka. This month, you can join us in supporting Season of Justice. In order to support our collaboration with Moms and Mysteries, you can share our social media posts regarding the campaign. You can join us today in supporting Season of Justice with a donation by visiting givebutter.com slash fallmoms or texting FALLSOJ to 53555. This nonprofit is very personal to us. Let us explain why. So far, five families featured on our show have had their awareness campaign grants funded through Season of Justice, including billboards and similar campaigns for Chido Garabay, Leon Lorellis, Jackie Nguyen and Nut Fan, Janice Becky LaPlante, and Matthew Grant. We've been supporting this nonprofit monthly since November 2022, and we hope you'll join us. <laughs>